Welcome back to The Queer Q, our first episode spotlighted multidisciplinary artist and filmmaker Clement Goldberg, who is returning with us today with filmmaker Carrie Cronenblatt. Hi. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Hi, thanks for having us. You know, in this episode, we really want to get to know both of your works. We watched Michelle T's Valencia. We know that you both worked on uh, that film as well. So can both of you tell us how, tell the viewers how you two met? Do you remember the exact moment, Clement? I, I wish I did. I feel like the most striking thing I can, that comes to mind, and I do not think it's the first time we met, um, but the most striking thing I have in my mind was just being in San Francisco, um, in the Castro Theater for Maggots and Men's premiere. And I just felt like one of the luckiest people in the world to have been there for uh -huh. that. So I remember like talking to you, I remember talking to Flo and just being absolutely blown away. Um, so that I remember. Yeah, cause when I, thank you, that's that was an amazing day for me as well. Such an amazing theater that made it all the more special. I love that theater. Um, but when I think back about how we met, I just think of like, oh yeah, I know who you are. But <laughs> because we just kind of knew who each other were, but didn't really hang out. And so we were just like people that said hi and, and stuff like that. Um, and that went on and that was years, that was years. And so like years later, um, when we started, was it around Valencia that we started corresponding more? Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah. I started, I mean, I started Valencia in like 2010 with Michelle, mm -hmm. like she had started it and then she was gathering directors and then my involvement increased in 2010. I don't know when yeah. you came on board for that because it was a long, I came many-year pro project. I don't remember. Maybe it was 2011, 2012 that I made the made the short. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really remember, but yeah. So around then we started. I I just but I feel like there's these times. So it it. I think we saw each other once a year at festivals leading for up sure. to it. And so it was this kind of thing where like, I moved away, but we would still see each other. And then we started working on the project and then we started corresponding more. And then, yeah, now we're friends and hang out. And yeah, that sounds very correct. Cause I had moved up from LA to San Francisco and you went from San Francisco to LA. Mm -hmm. Joshua Tree in between. Joshua Tree, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then Valencia, that had started with Michelle bringing filmmakers on to the project and at the at, that was, was something where we got to like pick what chapters we were going to do and I and so I I chose chapter five where the characters do uh mushrooms because I wanted to do half animation and half live action so I did I chose that chapter and then once I started working on the project more with Michelle and um at some point I came on as the as an editor and post-production supervisor for the overall project. So that's why we were in correspondence quite a bit at that time. And then as chapters came in, I just fell in love with the project more and more and um, and then co-produced it with Michelle and then uh, Radar Productions, which is a nonprofit literary organization that she was directing at the time. Well, we can see that, you know, you both had found each other, you know, you found yourselves within this community. And, you know, I think it's something that um, is really common with queer content 
and creators, you know, of becoming a filmmaker, becoming a creator, using your life experiences. And we see that with a lot of queer content creators, specifically a lot of trans, gender non-conforming, non-binary creators that, you know, they find, we find this community of being able to find each other, work together, collaborate. And I think something that, you know, is what we really want to find out is how your life experiences have influenced your journey as a filmmaker you know are there any you know growing up filmmakers or films that really inspired you to become a filmmaker i made my first film phineas slip as i was coming out and coming into my transgender identity and i i do think that the for me that the the two experiences were linked the making the film was a way for me to process some of the um things that were going on in my life and ideas and, and feel it in my head and feelings that I was having. And um, with the film, I was really trying to create confusion, confusion around gender and who was trans and who wasn't. And um, it's sort of, I was making the argument that um, masculinity can come in different flavors with different bodies and still be hot. And yeah, and that's sort of, one of the feel, you know, something that was really present for me at the time as I was kind of coming out and, and, and struggling with that a bit. Um, and Shonda Moore by Jean Genet was a big influence on Phineas Slip. Um, Genet's film is, is sweet and rough and dirty and gritty and grainy, and it's about longing. And I, I think you can say the same, um, that Phineas Slip has these same qualities. Um, an important theme in Janae's film is also isolation from society and um, at the time I was thinking a lot about isolation and how um, we live in a capitalist society that really fosters isolation and um, a, a society that's based on competition rather than cooperation. And I don't really think that there's any kind of a critique of capitalism that's present in Phineas Slipped, but there is the theme of competition. Um, male competition is being the only acceptable way of interacting that was available to the schoolboys, with of course the alternative being queerness. Um, in Phineas Slipped there's also a recreation of the scene where um, someone's blowing smoke through the hole in the wall that separates and I think that's the most memorable scene from Genet's film. And um, that's in Phineas with someone peeping through a, the bathroom stall and blowing smoke through the hole. And it's kind of funny because a lot of cigarettes were smoked that day, but not, not very much of the smoke really actually made it onto the film. But, um, but yeah, it's there. And it was part of the process. And yeah, that... So Janae's film was a huge influence on me. I I remember seeing like your, I, I remember Phineas Slipped, seeing that at festivals. I also got a chance um, after Valencia to, to see the film that Cadet, you in Texas made, um, where that, like the one that was the predecessor that was actually in the book. Um, so I got to see that, those I think at the Roxy, maybe. I don't know where I saw Phineas Slipped. 
so that maybe that was at the Victoria. Anyways, there's there's great. Frameline had really beautiful theaters um, for their festival, and I would get to go up um, uh, each each June and uh, enjoy Pride and and see um, the Frameline films and have films in their festival, and then meet all these amazing filmmakers and you know Cadet. I got to work with Cadet doing sound on my film, and then watch Cadet make incredible an incredible body of work as well. So. I think in that way, um, it's antithetical to the competition that you're talking, but there was a lot of working together, I would say, in both Valencia and then I think in, you know, even how you move through the world as a filmmaker, you're very collaborative. Yeah, I'd say the collaborative aspect is, is something that's super, super important to me. Yeah, and I think we see that in both of your work, especially when uh, when bringing into your films, you bring in a lot of people in the community, which I really love, you know, um, spotlighting people who aren't given the attention in mainstream media, you know, giving um, a spotlight to trans and non-binary uh, and gender non-conforming actors. And so I know that you did this, um, Carrie, with uh, Phineas Slipped. Um, you brought in, you know, a diverse group of individuals and actors and bodies um, in this short film. And I think uh, that also translated into maggots and men, which correct me if I'm wrong, I think I read somewhere it was about 77 trans and gender non-conforming actors you brought onto that project, which is astounding. I think at that time, or maybe still, it's like um, one of the most, uh, you know, most cast, trans-casted um, film. And so I kind of wanted to uh, talk about your approach into making maggots and men. And I know like you had a, uh, inspirations from Unchan uh, Damor and Bowship Temkin also for Mackens and Men. So, you know, I kind of want to pick your brain about like what, why you chose kind of doing this experimental and historical narrative. And then maybe after, you can give me uh, your first reactions to it at that festival when you saw it. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, so, so I think, so the number is, yeah, the number I think is 77 and, and, and that's actors, but then there's also another 10 act, uh, people in the crew that weren't also acting. And so, and the only reason why, and I have to say that that number has a margin of error and of like five or 10 people, I'm sure, because I'm making assumptions about some people's identities that I don't know. Some people's identities have changed and so on and so forth. And the way that I've found that number was just by counting names in the credits. Um, I didn't, <laughs> and making, if I could remember everything clearly. So it's kind of, and the reason why I did that was because there was this quote that people were saying where someone had heard it, it was like a game of telephone and someone maybe had initially said it. I think it was, I wanna say Texas said it when we were, presenting a work in progress shorts um, clip at Frameline. And if I can, rem I don't know if, if it, I don't know. Anyway, so it was, and then, and the quote was like hundreds of trans actors in this film. The other thing that people say is it's all completely only trans actors. And both of those things are kind of false. But my problem was, is I didn't have a figure. <laughs> and so I would say like, it's not hundreds of people 
but I didn't know how many people it was. And so I actually had to sit down and count by looking through the credits and trying to guess and everything like that. But the way, anyway, I think that's funny. But the way that the story goes is um, both Maggots and Men and Phineas Slipped started with this like initial experiment with this um, concept of <clears throat> taking an all-male environment. Um, with Phineas Slipped, it's a, all, it's a prep school, a boys' school. And with Maggots and Men, it's, an, it's a Navy base. And then casting the actors in that all-male environment with people with different gender expressions, with different bodies, I mean, different masculine gender expressions. And then sort of, so the result is kind of being presented to the audience as this redefinition of male. And that's just the idea. And so I did that in Phineas Slip. And that was also, um, yeah, like with Phineas Slip, I was really trying to create confusion. I think that there's this, especially at the time, the there was a very like kind of, uh, what's it called? Like a separation between gay and lesbian. And there was no like kind of trans in terms of like film programming for, and, um, and, and also there's like the culture mixed a lot um, less, I feel like. And so what I was trying to do is like subvert these categories. And so what I mean is like, it was trying to be visibly trans, but at the same time, like, you know, like showing a penis and having it be like, okay, so some of these people and keep everybody guessing. And the idea was to like, make it so that, um, so that people couldn't like pigeonhole it in like one category. And then the idea was to create an experience for the viewer and just relax and watch the movie and stop trying to figure it out. And so I started, when I started making Maggots and Men, the idea was I want, I just made a schoolboy movie. Now I'm going to make a sailor movie. And <laughs> so to make a sailor movie that was going to be like some fun, sexy thing, um, I needed to be set in another time and another place. I felt like making a, the movie about the U.S. Navy needed to be like a really kind of grim documentary, like critiquing imperial, you know, imperialism and like um, the war machine and everything like that. And but so I was just looking for like a, a something in history that took take took place in like um, someplace else. And I was, <clears throat> I was actually visiting a friend in London and I told her my story and she, she's someone that was involved in like kind of um, anarchist uh, community there. And she told me about this island of anarchist sailors. And so I, that was kind of enough for me to figure out I mean, to decide to make that movie, you know, but then I started doing the research. I mean, I honestly, I didn't know. I was like, where are they? Um, are they pirates? You know, what's going on? And so, um, but then I started it with like a Google search and, and was like, okay, they're Russian. Cool. What next? You know, and I just started reading about it and the, and the actual history, honestly, like I'd already made up my mind. I mean, I'm like, are they walking around in the tropics drinking out of coconuts and fine wearing not wearing any shirts you know 
I'm going to make that movie. And because it was just like enough of this like community of like men sharing things with each other and being nice and like having lots of meetings, you know, like I just thought it sounded so fun. And so, <laughs> but then when I found the real history, it was actually like way more amazing than any, I, anything that I could have imagined. I became completely obsessed. It was such an exciting time period in, in Russian history. And that project was really a, a research um, a research project. So going into it, I was thinking about like, I was also thinking about Derek, um, obviously, Ashanda Moore, I was also thinking about Derek Jarman, Beau Travai was maybe something that was in, in my mind. It was also like a research project. And the new things that I got turned on to were Eisenstein, um, obviously, Battleship Potemkin, also his texts. I was thinking about like the editing, the contrasting editing styles of Dovchenko. Dovchenko is like uh, like wide open pastoral scenes, like uh, Earth, and then Vertov is like man with a movie camera, like quick edits, like kind of um, jarring, and and also you know Eisenstein, of course, with his editing. Um, and I was also thinking about subverting the genre. You know, Battleship Potemkin is like this uh, propaganda movie. And how am I going to make my own propaganda movie? And what does that even mean? And, and stuff like that. And so there's this movie that's called um, Can Dialectics Break Bricks? And I don't think visually you really see that movie in um, Magus and Men. But it was something that was real. Because that's such a really fun way of subverting a, a movie. They took, it's like um, changing the subtitles on a martial arts movie. And then having it be a discussion about something completely like kind of hijacking a movie and making it about whatever you want. And so that was something that was super, I don't know, super present on my mind. What, what year did it premiere at the Castro? What year was that? That was 2009. I just had to locate myself in time and space to see yeah. where, uh, where I was in that. And I think, I feel like we met each other at film festivals because I think our work with the film festivals at that time, it was very much like uh, lesbian films, gay films. It was yeah. all very like separate, catered to particular audiences to sell tickets. Um, yeah. And I don't know when the like Transtastic program started. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I had been, I was regularly up there with films from like 2005 onward. Um, and, Okay, but 2009, I I don't think I would have been, I may have had, it might've been like Catastrophe's Big Deal, maybe was something that was in the festival. I, in any case, um, I remember, and so that was something that I shot on, on Super 8 and that was, um, it was a music video, a hip hop music video and for a trans artist. And then that was, um, I made it about Valerie Solanus and Andy Warhol and kind of that was the story of the music video um and I was shot on super eight so I think maybe and I was in a sort of super eight phase so I'm sure that the the film like did you shoot on 16 for maggots and men yeah I think most of it it's also it's mixed between super eight and 16 okay. and Maybe. So I remember the like filmic quality, like was um, because I'd made a I made one short on sixteen, and then I was in a in a super eight phase. So I think I was really um, 
blown away by that um, for sure. The art direction um, on top of, of the direction of like everything that you're talking about and all these underpinning works. I remember being just struck by uh, the artistry and the and like and just moments of seeing these like dreamy sailors in hammocks and you know and like some of the sets were cardboard right I haven't seen oh, yeah. it for a minute but like the cardboard sets were incredible it was like it was just something out of a dream you know that this film had been made that this many people came together to make this film I I just was completely floored I'd never like it seemed so some other world of possibility had opened up and this and the, <laughs> this like thing came through this you know um and so it was really like I don't know getting like witnessing like lightning striking a tree or something it was really I felt very lucky to be there you know it was really like a wild a wild unexpected and like um like shook me to my core in an amazingly beautiful way kind of a screening so that I mean that was my response I definitely remember like just feeling like who I I need to like um I want to work with these people I want to know you know I mean I knew some of them you know but it was really um I did feel like I had found another level of my people that um was really exciting you know it was like some other door opened like a side door in the universe opened up and um, because I had not lived in San Francisco and I was just somebody who came up in the summer. So I think I had uh, a very like transient and fast and like, um, I mean, I loved San Francisco and it was such an incredible city that I kept um, cherishing my summers and eventually loved it so much that I moved up there. But, and artistically, I think it was really, I found the art that was coming out of San Francisco so inspiring. It was um, part of why I wanted to move up there. and. Um, and then Valencia was kind of an excuse to do that, to, to take that leap. Um, I also had been making Reclamation, which was a 66 minute Super 8 film, which was all about LA. And I think it was just like too much LA. <laughs> so I think that was like, I finished it. I finished editing that when I moved to San Francisco. I needed, I needed a, um, some time outside to, to I think, look back. Um, but yeah, that's my, that is my response to Maggots and Men. Yeah. And you were about to do uh, an anniversary screening in New York at Anthology Film Archives before yeah. COVID hit. Do you think that that is something that people in New York can look forward to being rescheduled? God, I, I really hope so. Um, that was going to be such a fun screening. And I think that like um, one... I mean, one good thing about it being rescheduled is we can put more time into making an, we're, there's like an, we were going to do an art show, um, uh, alongside it and, um, putting more planning into that and rounding up more artwork. So there was a lot of kind of artwork that was made from like photographers on the scene and stuff like that. And, but people have to dig it all out and, you know, and so, um, I hope so. The other thing that was really exciting and such, and it was kind of crushing about that being canceled is that it was Maggots and Men and Peace of Mind playing um, back to back, which for me, like they really do go together, you know, and it's one film kind of transitions out of 
out of the other. And because it's um, Maggots and Men, I, I met Flo McGarrell and we got to be really, got to be really close and created this like really like um, amazing like collaborative partnership. And then after he passed away, we, we'd begun working on a movie and after he passed away, I just sort of incorporate that footage into a documentary about our friendship and his passing and yeah. And so, um, to have them play together is, I mean, I was, I was really excited about that. Um, I mean, uh, so much of, I think I made Maggots and Men before I'd gone to film school. And I think it was sort of me, part of that process was me learning how to make a film like a larger, like, you know, building on, 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 it was a much larger project than, um, Phineas Lipped. And so, I mean, part of what, so after I made that film, I decided I'm going to go to film school and I'm going to really center my filmmaking practice. I'm just going to go for it. And part of that decision to go for it, um, was because I'd met Flo McGarrell and I just felt like, honestly, like when we met, like, it's like him as an art director was like the missing piece to the puzzle of my creative practice it was, was sort of how it felt. And it really pulled the rug out from underneath me to lose him as a friend and as a partner. And um, yeah, and so that's basically what I was trying to put into to peace of mind. I think, and he sort of left a whole trail of people that feels similarly. Um, I mean, I, I met Flo that day at the screening at the Castro Theater and we talked under the marquee and that was yeah. our only interaction. But in that interaction, I was like, I want to work with you. Like, I just was immediately, I, I loved Flo. In that, like, you know, it's like you talk to someone for like five minutes and it was, it was really profound and, and Flo was so warm and was like come come to Haiti come you know come come visit and gave me his business card and I still have it you know and it was just such a short interaction um and when he passed away like I I just I felt a huge loss you know even and I so it's like I can't even imagine what it um was like for you who had a durational relationship and a collaborative relationship. And I'm so glad you did, you know, and, and his artwork is so incredible um, to have learned about so much um, after uh, I met him and, and experienced his work and got to experience him as a person um, without him being around. Um, but yeah, Peace of Mind is a really beautiful film and I hope you, I hope you put those two films together um, in New York and, and other places as well. I hope I hope that that is something that, um, as well as an art show, that sounds like a really great thing that curators should take listen to and maybe put in their spaces. As Clement was saying, like it felt like such a magical, dreamy time, and for me, it was certainly a magical time as well. And it really felt like that. Like we sort of um, just. So Flo just had this super magical energy about him. And he was also very like gung-ho and committed and like, 
like he was very immersive about his art practice. Like before I met him, he did things like performance. He did like a kind of a durational performance where he dressed as a sailor for a year. And he also did this, did stuff like crocheted a like line that was somehow like connected to like an anchor that he did moving out for like, you know, into the neighborhood, like for miles in Baltimore. Um, stuff like that, like really like kind of um, like interesting and very immersive um, performances. And also like him and I had both sort of prior to making Maggots and Men had both sort of been involved in like, like he was involved in, in Little Big Bang, which was a performance art group that traveled around in a bus. And I had been in involved in doing activism like against the war and queer anti-capitalist act activism in, in San Francisco and also like involved in organizing queer anarchist gatherings and sort of so we both had the this background of large um large scale like kind of productions of people and like how do we get them fed and how do we organize this and that and so we had these like structures where we kind of so our approach to filmmaking kind of called on really similar experiences of, of sort of organizing a large group of people for some sort of a, a creative um creative um in, you know in, in endeavor but with very little money and so we just had these natural I like we really saw eye to eye on like how to like organize a film shoot with like you know roping actors into doing cooking shifts and like getting people getting people onto the prop into the prop department and like you know having like sewing parties at my house and like all this kind of stuff that where we really just I mean just like the whole approach to filmmaking was very immersive and like part of how we bonded so it was he moved out and lived in my house you know and we just kind of lived in this like world of production and brainstorming and ideas and this that and the other um so we so after we finished maggots and men he'd moved to haiti and he did a residency at an art center there that transitioned into him taking over as the director of the art center we weren't living in the same place and we left a bunch of he had this idea to do um a film project of kathy goes to haiti which is a kathy acker novel and but our planning conversations we'd kind of decided to do in person and so i went out there and this was uh december of 2009 and i went a few weeks early and the idea was to nail down, make a script, finish the script, nail down what we were doing, make a bunch of decisions. But what we ended up doing was just like kind of staying in brainstorm mode, not really making any decisions and getting super caught up with the day-to-day -day drama of living in Haiti, like trying to find, get dealing with the power being out and trying to find internet and trying to carry the water to our house and all this kind of stuff like that. Like, and so when, and we, so the shoot that we did with Zachary, um, I have to say that she had the best attitude and she was really like kind of put up with our disorganization because I mean, it was, it was a little wild. Um, <laughs> but uh, so what we were doing 
at the time we we shot some scenes, but we didn't really know what the much the movie was going to look like. And then shortly after, and it was amazing working with Zachary. She had it, and it was like over a hundred degrees, really hot. And we were working long days and it was like really crazy. And she just landed in Haiti, but she just took it all in stride and we had a really good time. Um, but yeah, and then that was, um, I think we flew home on Christmas Eve on the 24th of December and then Flo passed away. The earthquake happened on January 10th. And so it was very shortly after that shoot and um yeah and so i mean so the that project just kind of stopped and i um I, I felt like we didn't know enough of what the movie was and it only could be figured out together and so i so it was the only choice was to make it into a completely different movie oh and i'll just stop there i can talk about my my current project that i'm working on now but maybe i'll like let someone else speak before that but if I could jump back to influences, because when Clement was speaking, I remembered, I forgot to mention Dandy Dust. And that completely blew me away. That was 1998. And it was a filmmaker named Hans Schurl who made this kind of wild movie that was similar to the kind of my style in the way that it was just like kind of so many different movies all or so many different things like smushed into one movie. And it was so cool and really wild and experimental. And it also featured a sort of um, like a, it was a dandy that was kind of a sort of feminine, masculine, tr like a trans expression. And it was something that was really moved me because that's like what I wanted to see. I do feel like it's those expressions um, and seeing those kinds of characters, I still feel like there's um, a real need to have more of that. Yeah, we, um, we completely agree with that. And I think um, what would be a great bridge to what you're working on now is to discuss Misha Love, you know, because, you know, when we're talking about anti-trans legislature throughout the country and the constant abuse and treatment that so many trans, gender non-conforming and non-binary individuals face. You know, this film, Isha Love, it's, it's very vital for us now. And we really wanted to know what the process was like making that, what it means, you know, with all of the context today and kind of where that leads you today with what you're working mm -hmm. on now. Yeah, and so the project started with a short that I did, I directed for the ACLU that was part of a series that's called Trans in America. And the short that I directed focused on Isha Love and um, it was about her kind of getting on her feet after incarceration and and yeah and that was the interest of the ACLU like sort of showing something about the effects of our broken criminal justice system and how you know that has real effects on people's lives and so she was really amazing to work with and it was 
I had a great time making, um, doing that project. And we stayed in contact and we decided to work on a feature length version of the movie. And I, the idea was just to expand it and have it be like her just in her life. Like, um, uh, but something, but she ended up becoming part, becoming a plaintiff on a lawsuit. And so the shift of the movie of the future is folk is is we're shifting focus onto her participation in this lawsuit, and it's actually really exciting. And we're opening it up. We're starting to have other of the um, plaintiffs on the lawsuit um, get involved in the movie as well. And so um, the lawsuit is um, it's it, so Illinois has a law that prohibits people with felony convictions from changing their names and so they have to wait 10 years and so that's a that's a law that's for everybody but it really has diff, has uh, affects trans women disproportionately because they have so much at stake for changing their name and so what you end up is having is people stuck with their kind of dead name 10 years after they've transitioned you know and so the um, Illinois lawsuit, there's a there's a project there that's called Trans Transformative Justice Law Project (TJLP), and they have they're behind this lawsuit that has eight trans women plaintiffs, and they're suing the state to get this law removed. And at the same time, there's a bill in the Illinois State Assembly that will do the same thing and that everything was on hold for covid but then it just it's um like this month is moving through the state assembly it's in the state senate now and so that's so what so what i'm doing is at the end of the week going out there to start shooting on to to cover this um specifically what they're doing is the focus of the shoot is going to be around the plaintiffs making videos for their social media to get people to call their state senators. And what it'll be is like little skits that are based on their life experience of what it's like to have a name that doesn't match your appearance. Because what happens is, is people show their ID um, and the bouncer at the club is surprised by their name because they have a very a male name and a female appearance um, or maybe, or the whoever it is, it's uh, registering for classes, um, having their dead name get called out when they're waiting in the um, waiting room at the health center. Um, you know, the list goes on. It's like people can say their preferred name, but then there's some, there's oftentimes a conversation about, about it. Like people have to work a job in their old name. Um, not everybody honors that their, their um, chosen name. And, you know, some, this is, this, it, and the experiences range from being like, a hassle to being like actually dangerous or people when they out themselves they sometimes people act transphobic and can make a comment and that's you know awkward and people complain about like not wanting to commit to a job or not even wanting to go to um uh, not even wanting to go through that process and it really holding them back um in the lawsuit 
um, one of the examples that they use is somebody went to apply for food stamps and the person that was or uh, conducting the interview said, this isn't you, go back with your real ID. They refused, they, they couldn't understand that the person, they didn't believe. They, it's, it's like it's the experience of being transgender isn't necessarily something that is, that people can wrap their head around. Some people um, think that the person is lying and trying to run a con rather than believing that they actually are transgender. And so it's just, it, that's just because it's, it's, you know, different people have different experiences and that's probably someone that has never had um, access to a transgender person knowingly, you know? And so, and I think that this is such an important um, issue. I think it, I think it's such an important like kind of intersection of, of, of issues. I mean, because one of the things that we have to look at is how trans women are disproportionately in the system. Because um, uh, there's, there's one thing that happens is people can't get jobs and they do sex work. And another thing that happens is that people are targeted by the police disproportionately. And so, yeah, so I think that it's, um, well, I think it's exciting because one, for me, something that's really present in this story and working with these plaintiffs is this kind of arc of transformation where um, like Isho came out of, of after doing four years in a supermax jail and she came out and became an activist. And so I think that like what's common between each of these women is that they have a, um, a criminal record, you know, they, they each have a felony conviction. And so there's someone that has had experience with the system and then they're going back and engaging with the same court system to, they're basically taking on the state, taking charge of their lives and um, yeah, and working to make changes that are gonna affect people after them. They're gonna affect like the whole community and you know, and really kind of change things for, for the good. And it's like at an expense because they're not only outing themselves as transgender, they're also outing themselves as having um, a felony conviction, which is a really big deal. Like that's a super, that's like a super stigmatized um, experience in, 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 our, in our culture. Yeah, so I'm gonna be doing, oh, I could plug. So I'm doing an Indiegogo as we speak. Um, and if anybody wants to follow the film, um, we have a website, it's Chicago Love Doc. And you can find Chicago Love on Indiegogo if you wanna help us get through our, our shoot. Well, that's awesome. We'll put all the links down in the descriptions for this video. So everybody watching, you can visit it right in the description. Um, so I know another thing that we really want to talk about is representation. You know, before we wrap up, we want to talk about, you know, what we're seeing with representation. Um, how has it changed or via your perspective, you know, do you think we're moving in a more authentic and inclusive 
you know, um, are we trending that way? What do you think is still missing? What can be done? And what are the other avenues that we have other than looking for representation in mainstream Hollywood? Disclosure is so exciting for the, for so many reasons of, of um, being a nuanced film that is taking a political underpinning and putting it through the Hollywood system and kind of, and, and talking about um, race and gender and um, things simultaneously and, and putting it through a, hist a historical lens. Um, and I mean, my hope is that it was so well done that it opens up space for trans writers and directors and, and those of us who have not necessarily been able to tell stories outside of the transition story or, um, you know, in the same way that like queer cinema can kind of just be the coming out story um, to move beyond the transition story and to tell more expansive stories and genre pieces. And, um, and so it's this really exciting time that it's, you know, transparent made a huge difference as well. And um, I'm excited with seeing a lot of shows um, on networks and, and films um, where we are seeing trans characters now. And it's, um, and so I'm, I'm, I hope that it just means that there's more opportunities for people who've been making films for a really long time to be able to have support to continue their work, um, resources and um, distribution and all those things, um, selfishly speaking and speaking on behalf of Carrie and others, um, because we have, you know, had the queer and trans people working as crew on our own projects. So behind the camera and in front of the camera, we've been like modeling that for a really long time and um, and also picked that up from new queer cinema people. Um, so it's queer cinema has a, a beautiful collaborative political history. You know, I was also thinking about, I would protest a lot in San Francisco and it's possible that we met at film festivals, but it's also just as likely that we met at protests. And I'm. it seems like where the world is at, there's really not a separation of those things. And I hope that we, we can keep integrating um, political subtext um, within our art making and, and have that be something that can be seen um, in film and television as well, that we're not, you know, just making entertainment for entertainment's sake. And it seems like we're in that time, you know, there's a lot of really incredible work. I think, um, you know, Zachary Drucker's recent Lady in the Dale was such a groundbreaking project as well. Um, I've never seen anything like that. I, I, it was such a refreshing and um, incredible project to see, you know? Um, so yeah, it's an exciting time. Um, so I just wanted to speak to that. So I'm, I'm excited for the known and the unknown queer and trans filmmakers that hopefully will be able to have more opportunities to create work because of uh, films like Disclosure and, and works that have kind of got us to this, this moment. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm really excited to see where we're moving forward. Um, so then to wrap this up, to have our closing questions then, um, 
where can our listeners support your work? Where can they find you online? And um, yeah, uh, how can they uh, reach out to you? I'm on the internet at clemgoldberg.com, C-L-E-M, Goldberg, G-O-L-D-B-E-R-G.com. Um, and you can see my art and animation and there are links to my films there. Um, I have work on Vimeo. There's the Valencia film on demand page on, on Vimeo as well. And you can get to that through my website or directly through Vimeo and The Deer in Between also has its own, it's a stop motion web series in that you can stream um, all six episodes for free on Vimeo. Um, and then there's, I think, clips of my other projects online. Um, and I guess you can Venmo me money if you want to support me. <laughs> um, I think my handle's at Clemworks. Um, so I'm definitely um, trying to make a a feature film next, but I am for now throw your money towards uh, Carrie's Indiegogo because that is a campaign that is currently running. But um, but yeah, I'll post about things on my website down down the road. Um, I have a website that's my name. That's CarrieCronenwet.com. And if people are curious about my work, they can see it there. And like little clips of Magus and Men and Peace of Mind. Um, but there's also a link to the Vimeo page where you can stream both of those movies. Well, thank you both so much for sitting down with us. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you, Clement. Like before, thank you for being a part of this. We're really grateful to be able to discuss these films and discuss your artistry on this episode. So thank you both for joining us. Mm, thank you. And I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to ask such thoughtful questions and I appreciate being here. Thank you, this was very fun. Mm -hmm.